This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. back with you uh, today. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 10 to 17. And as you're turning there, I want you to imagine this scene with me. The Corinthians, they have just received this letter from Paul the Apostle, and it's finally arrived in Corinth. And so they all gather together in all this excitement. In one place, it says, check, check. I'll just keep on going right here. Check, check, check. Can you guys hear me through this mic? Okay, let's do this tonight. So again, let's imagine this scene where the Corinthians have just received a word uh, that the letter from Paul has arrived in Corinth, and they're all gathering in anticipation, in excitement, uh, to gather in one place to hear it. And so as this is happening, imagine these two guys who strike up a conversation together before everything gets started. So did, uh, did you know about this letter coming from Paul? <laughs> did I know about this letter coming from Paul? Of course I knew about this letter. Oh. Oh, you, do, you know, do you know Paul well? Brother, bless you. Paul and I, we go way back. I was here before the church even began. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was a part of what they call the first 100. The first 100. Yeah, the first 100. The first 100 Europeans to believe in Jesus. I even have a plaque to show it. I'll show you later. I'll show you later. Those were special days, I tell you. I mean, I know, I know you really can't imagine this. You can't imagine what it was like, but Paul the Apostle was my pastor for 18 months. His teaching, incredible. It wasn't complicated, wasn't flashy, but it was full of power. But we all knew, we all knew he needed to move on because of his calling. He's an apostle. He was going to unreached people groups in Europe. So new teachers came, new pastors were raised up. Around that time, Apollos, he came too. And don't, don't get me wrong, Apollos was a great teacher. And hey, that guy has a great way with words. He is so good as a, as a preacher. But my loyalty, my loyalty is with was with Paul. Nothing can compare with Paul and the way that he preaches. Oh, I'm so excited to receive this letter. It's like he'll be standing right here in front of us again. I can't wait to see what he has to say. Now, you're not. You're not one of those Apollos people, are you? 
oh, no, actually, I'm a, I'm a Cephas guy. Oh, you're a, you're a Cephas guy. Well, just so you know, I like to eat pork chops and shrimp. <laughs> you need to listen. You need to listen to this letter. Listen carefully. Paul knows he's going to have this church on their knees in no time. And so the letter begins to be read aloud after a greeting and a thanksgiving that we heard last week. Paul begins his first major portion of this letter. Let's read it again in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Can you imagine? Who would have guessed that this is where Paul would start? Really, Paul, this is where you want to go the very first thing. You don't want to hammer the spiritual gifts mess that's happening on Sunday mornings. You don't want to address all the chaotic views of the resurrection. You don't want to even start with something so important and practical like marriage counseling in the church. You don't want to go there. No. Local church unity. Unity. That is where he starts. Now think to yourself, I mean, is unity really that big of a deal? Well, apparently it is. In fact, that is the most widespread theme of this entire book. Four chapters out of the 16 are dedicated only to unity, and it's throughout the rest of the book as well, scattered throughout. Paul sees unity as a major deal, the major deal in Corinth. This morning, we're going to see two major points in these verses, and you can see this in the notes insert in your bulletin if you have one. Number one is that Paul appeals to unity in verses 10 to 12, and then number two, Paul elevates the gospel over particular leaders in verses 13 to 17. So again, one, Paul is going to appeal to unity in verses 10 to 12, and then he's going to elevate the gospel over particular leaders in verses 13 to 17. So let's, let's start with his appeal. Verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, so that verse, there's three synonymous phrases back to back to back that are really saying the same thing. Paul is calling for unity, period. Okay, now as careful Bible readers, we need to be remembering that everything Paul asks them to do, asks us to do, it has an important underlying theological foundation. So when we're reading the Bible, every time we get into the Bible, and we see a command like this, I appeal to you to be united, we should be asking, well, where did Paul get that idea from? 
Where, where does unity even come from in his mind? What truths make him think that he can say that? What truths are behind this appeal to be united? Well, first, there's, there's two answers to that. Number one is it goes back to their identity in Christ. Before we can talk about unity with one another, we need to understand the unity, or what we would call the union, that we have with Christ himself. Paul can call the Corinthians and us to unity because, you see this in your notes, we are already united to Christ. We are already united with Christ. The first thing that happens when the gospel takes root in our hearts, when we repent, when we believe in the good news of Jesus, is that we become one with Jesus. This is all over the scriptures. And maybe one of the best places to go is Romans chapter 6. It says it like this. 6 verse 3, it says, Do you not know, it's the same writer, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you notice the language that Paul is using in that little paragraph? When we believe in Christ, we are, the best way to say it is we are one with him. We become one with him. Everything that he's done, we've now done. His death became my death on the cross. His resurrection from the grave was my resurrection from the grave. Thus, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so the first truth, the reason why Paul can come up there and say, be united, is because they're already united to Christ himself. That's the first truth. Now, there's another thing underneath this, this statement that he's making, and that is, number two, that we are already united with each other. We are already united with one another. Our fixed unity with Christ does something between us as well. So as the, as the gospel vertically unites us to Christ, it horizontally unites us with one another. And what Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, you've already studied this recently, is that the gospel creates one people. One people. And this isn't something that needs to still be accomplished. This is something that's already been accomplished. You see, when you look around, when you look at the person to your left or to your right, you are already, the fact already exists that you are united to him. You don't have an option but to call him brother. You don't have an option but to call her sister. She is your sister in Christ. He is your brother in Christ. It's a purchased at the cross fact that we are one in Christ, period. Therefore, when Paul appeals to the Corinthians to agree, his, his firepower, like the, credi the credibility underneath his appeal is their identity, their identity in Christ. Paul is saying, because we've been united to Christ and to one another, get along, agree, unite. That's because Paul sees a gap. He sees a gap. And this is why he adds that second statement. He says, you know, be, that all of you agree, then right after that, that there may be no divisions among you in verse 10. You see that? Well, he knows that they have divisions. He knows that there are schisms. If there are a garment, he can see that there are tears all over the place 
in the church. He hears of a church that's united according to their identity, but that is divided according to their actions. And Paul knows this is the tension that we face, brothers and sisters. This is the tension that we will face until Christ returns, that it is possible for our lives to mismatch our identity. And so you know what Paul's calling for? This is a really big word right now. This is an extremely relevant word right now. He's calling for integrity. Paul is calling the church in Corinth to be men and women of integrity. He's calling for people who are united to be united. You see, unity in a local church like Covenant Baptist Church is a matter of Christian integrity. It says something about who we are. Do we live what we are? Okay, then he qualifies that, this, this unity with two follow-up statements, right? That you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay, so these phrases, they help us too. They give us a little bit more color on what Paul's talking about. He, they help us as Christians because they tell us that Paul is asking for unity, no doubt. Yes, he is. But he's not asking for some like robotic, lifeless uniformity. He's not asking for some bland, empty sameness. You know, perhaps the best way to express this word judgment is to use the word that we have called consent, or the word that we use often, deference, or to defer. For Paul, unity regularly requires consent. It regularly requires us to defer to other people. Now, what do I mean? Listen carefully right now. I mean that we ought to strive in as many places as we possibly can to agree in as many places as we can to agree with one another. But when we can't, we ought to consent to remain together anyway. What is Paul saying? He's saying that disagreements happen. Not gonna do anything about it. We are gonna disagree with each other. You're gonna disagree with, with someone right next to you. Disagreements happen. And based on your identity in Christ, be with me here for a second, I say it gently, Get over yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Get over yourself for the sake of the gospel in a local church. Be willing to remain with. Be willing to love. Be willing to lead. Be willing to follow those with whom you disagree. What a massive cultural antidote right now. What a massive lesson Christians, evangelicals, can learn right now. We are so prone, guilty as charged, guilty as charged. We are so prone to stretch out our disagreements so much and put up these walls in front of each other that prevent genuine fellowship. And so Paul says, stop. Just stop it. Agree. Consider others as more significant than yourself. Humble yourself for the sake of your sister. Humble yourself for the sake of your brother. Okay, so let's, let's get to the divisions in particular. Let's get detailed here. What kinds of division are we talking about? What's going on in Corinth in particular? Okay, so let's look at what Paul says, verse 11. 
For, so he's explaining himself now, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Whatever these divisions are, they're related to specific people, right? We see all those people just listed. So let's ask, were these leaders that he just mentioned, himself, Apollos, Cephas, were they teaching different doctrines? Were they teaching different gospels, like a different truth? Well, the short answer, Paul answers it for us, it's no. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, using Apollos as, as a particular example, that their message, the substance of their message, the goal of their ministry, is the exact same. They're one in purpose. They are teaching the exact same gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sinners and was raised on the third day. They're all servants of Christ. The rifts, the, the, the tares in Corinth had nothing to do with protecting the truth. They had nothing to do with essential, essential doctrines. Because if it was to do with essential doctrines, if it was to do with uh, these important truths, Paul would absolutely say stand up. He says that in Philippians chapter 3. He says that in Galatians chapter 1. If it is about the gospel, absolutely make a haystay about it. Like make a deal about those kinds of things. But that's not what's going on here. It wasn't a division over God's nature. It wasn't a division over the atonement. They weren't debating whether Jesus was truly divine or even on a second tier level. They weren't even debating whether we should baptize infants or believers. There was nothing like that going on. No. The divisions came from choosing favorites. The divisions came from choosing favorites. What is the major problem that Paul has to start this letter with? Partisanship. Preference. Pulpit performance. There was a debate in the church about which teacher they liked more. They began to consider which man was the greater orator, which one was more impressive in the pulpit, which one leaves me more in awe, which preacher would I invite my friends to come listen to. And so they began to compete for prestige in the church. This was a personality-driven faction problem in Corinth. And so that's why Paul says, enough is enough. Oh, you follow Paul? Oh, oh, you follow Apollos? Oh, you follow Cephas? Well, guess what? And I think he interjects this last one. I follow Christ. I follow Christ. He's, he's coming down on them pretty hard right away because they're playing a game that pagans play. For Paul, loyalty that is based on rhetorical skill or leadership preferences or leadership styles it opposes the gospel. It opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so his response is humbling. And now we kind of go to the second part of his thought. Now he's going to elevate leaders. He's going to elevate the gospel over leaders. Verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's saying, do you even see what this looks like? Do you, do you have any clue what this sounds like? When Christians fight with one another like this, it says something about Christ. It says something about the gospel. And so what I want to do, I want to slow down just for a second 
and look at each one of these three questions. Look at what Paul's doing with these. Okay, so first, is Christ divided? What a major question. What a powerful question he's asking. And it gets back to Paul's understanding of our union with Jesus Christ. Remember, just talked about this. When we believe in Christ, we are united to him. That is, we become one with him. Now, this doesn't mean that I, I cease to be or you cease to be. I'm still Josh. You're still you. But we're also in Christ. We can't be taken out of Christ. We can't be detached from Christ. And so Paul, he explores this inseparable tension of, of our union with him by saying that the Corinthians' division projects a kind of division within Christ himself, as if Christ himself is being torn limb by limb. What a devastating picture that would be. And, by the way, it is a foul heresy. For Christ cannot be torn limb to limb. His nature is perfect. His wholeness is untouchable. But Paul's point is, when you have unfounded strife among you like this in Corinth, it's, like, it's as if you're trying to divide the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our division lies about who Christ is. Or we can say it like this, and you see this in the notes insert, that division in the local church is an assault on the very nature of Christ. Division in the local church is an assault on the very nature of Christ. So first question he asks is, is Christ divided? Second, he says, was Paul crucified for you? So first he addressed the nature of Christ. Now he's going to address the crucifixion itself. He's saying, was I the one on the cross? Was I the one who was pinned to the tree? Was, was Apollos the one who secured your redemption? Was Peter the one who bore the Father's wrath? The Corinthians, they, they sounded like they cared more about who was preaching more than whether or not they were preaching at all. Brothers and sisters, we can see how this can happen in a church, can't we? Well, I just prefer the way he preaches. Well, I prefer the way he preaches. And rapidly, we have this, this preacher versus that preacher kind of mentality. And it becomes more important than what they're preaching. And it's a shame. Now, this doesn't mean at all. This doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to gifts. This doesn't mean we don't pay attention to God-given abilities. He has given those gifts for the good, for the building up, for the edification of the church. Paul will say that exact same thing in a few chapters. No, we pay attention to those gifts. We affirm those gifts. We affirm those leaders. But Paul's point is don't worship them. Stop worshiping those gifts. Stop idolizing God's vessels. This can happen with pastors inside of a church. This can happen with speakers and famous pastors outside of a church. And gnarly divisions crop up. And the simple message of the cross is lost in the battle. And suddenly we're not talking about the cross. We're talking about particular people that we like or don't like. We stop talking about Jesus himself. It's distracting. And it takes our eyes off of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so you see this a second implication here. Division in the local church takes our eyes off of the cross of Christ. Division in the local church takes our eyes off of the cross of Christ. And then Paul asks this third question. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now to understand this one, we need to ask ourselves, well, what is baptism again? What, what, is the, what is the point of baptism? 
Well, the New Testament tells us that baptism is a picture. It's a sign that represents what Christ has done for us and in us. It's an outward sign that people can see of an inward heart change that people cannot see. All right, so the scriptures, but they give us another example. They give us another role for baptism, and that is that baptism is a pledge. Baptism is also a, a pledge. It's the act of ultimate allegiance for the citizens of heaven, for our King Jesus. So that's why we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. At baptism, we enter into this fellowship with God. We are stamped by God that he owns us, but we also, in return, we take on his name, don't we? When we are baptized, we enter into a relationship with God where we want to take on his reputation. We take on his kingdom, and we make an an oath of loyalty to our one king, and we say, my life is yours, God. My life is forever yours. No one else can have my heart. No one else can have my life. No one else can have my time. No one else can have my wallet. No one else can have anything that competes with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what baptism communicates. I am yours and yours alone. And so for Paul, when a church gets sidetracked with these contests of favorite leaders, He's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Am am I the one to whom you pledged allegiance? Am I the one to whom you promised an undying loyalty? Is it my name stamped on your heart? No. No, not at all. When we form factions in the church based on our favorite staff guy, We form factions based on our favorite elder or our favorite deacon or our favorite Sunday school teacher or our favorite mom or our favorite whatever, we might as well strip off the beauty and the exclusive rights of ownership that we gave to Christ when we were baptized. Dangerous. You see, division in the local church not only confuses the world about our theology, no, division in the local church also confuses the world about our love. It confuses the world about our allegiance. It confuses the world about our worship and our adoration of Christ and him alone. When the world sees Christians fighting, they have no way of seeing how precious Jesus Christ our Lord is, our master and our king. And so a third implication, you see this, division in the local church undermines the lordship of Christ. Division in the local church, it undermines, it claws at the lordship of Christ. It undermines our allegiance to Christ. And we cannot afford divisions like this. Our witness cannot handle these kinds of hits. Not only because it damages our credibility, but because it snuffs out the majesty of Christ. Yes, we as the church are the pillar and the support of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, but when we needlessly divide, it is like we're taking a a sledgehammer and we are crushing the clarity of our message and the authenticity of our hearts. That is what division does. It wipes out that pillar that we are. We have to take divisions seriously. And this is especially important, especially important amongst church leaders. Look at where Paul goes next here. In verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus 
and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. You're kind of like wondering, Paul, what are you doing there? Why'd you go there? Why'd you say that? Uh, But his main point is this. He is intentionally deflecting glory. You catching this? You see what he's doing? He's intentionally deflecting glory away from himself. He is discounting how important he is. He is purposefully lessening his influence in Corinth. He's glad. He even says he thanks God that that so few can say that he's the one who baptized them. Why? Because in comparison to the glory of the gospel, it doesn't matter that much. This is a rare Pauline moment where he's saying, who cares? Christian leaders are jars of clay. We are brittle. We crack. We break. We even shatter sometimes. And we get swept up by the maids of time, and we're gone. A church cannot build itself around a man because that man will one day disappear. No, a church must build itself on the treasure of the gospel and the gospel alone. And so we see from Paul this wonderfully humble but healthy view of Christian leadership. The posture of Christian leadership is personal deflection and Christ exaltation. The posture of Christian leadership must be personal deflection and Christ exaltation. The pastor or the leader is so happy and satisfied in Christ that the more attention Christ receives and the less attention that he receives is the pastor's barometer for effective ministry. I know that I'm doing my job when you don't care about me nearly as much as you care about Christ. You see, men who elevate their own ministry and their own name, they, they, whether they realize it or not, they're damaging the gospel. See, as pastors, it is essential for our spiritual health and yours to regularly seek to diminish our personal influence over people. Power plays, name recognition, jockeying for influence, that opposes the gospel. In contrast, ministry should always be pointing away from the minister. That's what Paul is doing. That is what Paul is doing constantly all throughout his letters, humbling himself, acting like John the Baptist. I'm decreasing so he can increase. So Paul then he transitions there in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul reminds us that his main goal is simply to preach the gospel. That's his charge as an apostle. But let's remember, what is the gospel? What is that message? Why are we here today? In fact, if you are here today and you do not know the message of Jesus Christ, Or maybe you do know it, or maybe you have heard it, but you've been running from it. I want you to hear the gospel again today. That there is a wonderfully holy, 
and loving God who reigns over all things. And he created you and he created me in his image. And he made us to love him, to serve him, and to live for him. That's who God is. And that's who we have been made to be. But as humans, as people, we have rebelled against him. Maybe you can think of a few ways you've rebelled against God this week. That we've, where we've fallen short of God's standard of holiness. We've all done that. Every single person in this room is guilty of that. And that sin, that sin against God, that rebellion has had major consequences. It has separated us from God. And we cannot dwell with him anymore. And we were, we were made to dwell with him, but we can't because our sin and his holiness cannot coexist. And so it leads to our death. It leads to a spiritual death, and it leads to a physical death. Death exists because of sin. That is the reality of the world today. But don't you know it? That God, who is full of mercy and who is full of love, he sent his own son into the world, and his name was Jesus. And he lived a life that we could never imagine, one where every thought was pure and every action was righteous. And this holy man, Jesus, he willingly went to the cross to die. And his death on the cross acts as this one-of-a-kind exchange. When Christ died, he took your sins and mine with him to the grave. And then three days later, he rose from that grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death. And now, for those who repent, repent of their sins, those who trust in Jesus, God forgives us of sin. He forgives us. He wipes it away, and that separation is no more. We have been reconciled to God, and we are changed supernaturally. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God comes to dwell with men and women again. And though one day our mortal bodies die, we still live with him. And another day he will come back. And he will restore us, even our bodies. He will restore our bodies. And we will live with him forever. And so if today you are still in your sins, repent and believe in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Because you also need to hear this, that for those who reject Jesus, for those who balk at this free gospel offer, they... They suffer an eternal wrath. They suffer an eternal punishment away from the living God. So come to Christ. Come to Christ even now, my friend, while you have a chance. That is the message of the gospel. And that is the message that matters most to Christians. That is the message of Christianity. You see, the purpose of preaching is not to wow you. No, the purpose of preaching is to humble you, to save you, and to change you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, preaching is not just saying something. Preaching does something. And we must do everything that we can to preserve the simplicity of preaching the gospel, lest it be emptied of its power. You see, I know that for me, as a pastor, that if the way I preach 
becomes more memorable than what I preach, well, then I have no business here. I have no business in this pulpit. If you're talking more about, oh, this or that, instead of, did you, did you hear the word today? Oh, how careful anyone who steps up into this pulpit must be. Any man who gets up here must be ever so intentional not to distract his people with rhetorical ability or personality because it confuses and it even deflates the power of the gospel. Woe to the man whose delivery buries his content. And so while the posture of Christian leadership is deflection, the evaluation of Christian leadership always must remain faithfulness. Faithfulness. The evaluation of Christian preaching is not eloquence. It's not fancy. It's faithful. It's faithfulness. So where do we go from here? What do we do with this text? Let me give you a few brief encouragements. Number one, as a church, fight for unity. My goodness, please hear me. Fight for unity at every turn. Unity is every member's business. It is every member's job, even duty. Therefore, if that is the case, then humility is required. We can't be a church together if we are not humble. So defer. How wonderful it would be if people would describe your role in the church as one of deference. You're always looking out for the better of another. Assume the best in others. That's another way to seek unity in the church. Just assume the best of a brother and sister in Christ. Don't assume the worst. Assume the best in them. Be charitable. Be patient. Because our unity together, it speaks volumes about the gospel. Number two, so one is fight for unity. Two, beware of chasing status ladders. Beware of chasing status ladders. Don't get caught up in who you know or who you're able to get to or what inside track you might have to this person or that person. That stuff is so meaningless. <laughs> it's a game that's exhausting and never fulfilling. And it ends up making other people feel less significant. Paul says the exact opposite. He says, he says treat others as more significant than yourself. But you see, when we vie for influence, we vie for power, it ends up hurting people. Division hurts people. So the next time you're tempted, we're all tempted with this, brothers and sisters. We're all tempted to divide. We're all tempted to shimmy and find our ways. The next time you're tempted to do it, remember, this action will hurt a brother. This conversation will hurt a sister. Beware of chasing that mess. Don't play the game. Number three, focus on substance rather than style. Focus on substance rather than style in the pulpit. Build a, a, up a discernment. And if I could encourage you, this church has built up a discernment for hearing the truth. You, you hear the truth and you know the truth and you recognize the truth. Praise God. Keep that in the central part of what you care about and find contentment there. If the truth is coming, be happy in God. 
Does delivery matter? Of course it does. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle delivery. I'm just I'm trying to make sure we know that d- delivery is so much less significant than content and truth. And lastly, number four, pray for your pastors. This might sound a little selfish. Pray for your pastors because just as much as partisanship can find a home amongst the members, partisanship can find a home amongst pastors too. Fear of man is real. And fear of man is the cancer to powerful ministry. A pastor's accountability in the pulpit ultimately must rest in knowing that he is serving in the literal presence of God. What a humbling and even stronger haunting responsibility that is. So pray for the men who come up here and preach God's word. God forbid that we treasure your approval so much, which is important. It is important to have your approval. But if we treasure it so much that we empty it, empty the cross, empty the gospel of its power, we are headed in the wrong direction. So pray for your pastors. And the bottom line of it all is, brothers and sisters, let's seek unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, only. Let's seek unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We kneel before it. We yield to you. It is authoritative. We sit before a real God who is holy and perfect. We sit before a real God who has made a way to call us children. And we rest in the gospel. And so, as those who have been justified by faith, and those who are being sanctified by the Spirit. Enable Covenant Baptist Church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to walk with all humility and gentleness, to walk with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, make this church one, just as you and your Son are one, so that the world may believe in you, through the witness of their unity. We need you for this, and we trust you for this. Be glorified, God. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.